The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Dan Murphy, Director of Special Initiatives at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Carla Simon, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Center for International Social Development at Catholic University of America. Her recently published book is Civil Society in China, The Legal Framework from Ancient Times to the New Reform Era. Carla, many thanks for taking the time to speak with me today about civil society in China. Thank you very much, Dan. I'm happy to join you. I'd like to start off by asking you why your book begins in ancient times. How can an examination of the historical legal framework for civil society in China inform our understanding of civil society today? Well, I think there are two reasons for that. One is that, as I say in the preface to the book, I think that it's important to recognize that the history of a civilization, like the Chinese civilization, very much informs what happens in the civilization today. I thought it was incredibly interesting, for example, that I had students when I was teaching at Beida who were very interested in volunteering, and one of the things I wanted to find out whether that was consistent with the way in which Chinese people had behaved in the past. And I, I thought, of course, that it was, and it, I found a great deal of proof that it was. So that's the, f- the first reason. The second reason, and this is more specifically related to the legal framework, is um, one of the ways in which Chinese law has developed over time is by looking back into history and borrowing things that were done in, in, in historical times for purposes of application in current times. And so one of the things that I discovered, for example, was a procedure of recording um, a, a non-profit organization or an association during the 19th century, during the Qing Dynasty, which was basically picked up with a different name quite recently um, under the Communist Party's regime. It began in, in Qingdao, um, but it's now spread throughout China. So I think it's important to see where the borrowings occur from the, the ancient frameworks. Moving to the present day, let's say that I am the head of a small civil society group in China. What basic steps would I need to take to formally register my organization, and what are some of the difficulties I might encounter when seeking to register? Well, that's changing. And so the the thing to be aware of is that that's really a moving target at the present time. Up until relatively recently, it was necessary for a group that wanted to become registered as, as an NGO to, or a civil society organization to obtain permission either from a government ministry or from a related government-related NGO like the Women's Federation or something like that. Now, uh, in, in this very quickly moving situation at the local and provincial level, level across China, there's the opportunity to, quote, directly register, unquote, with the Ministry of Civil Affairs. And that process is supposed to be um, put into new regulations that will become nationally effective. They're supposed to be completed 
by the end of 2013. And so this is a very, very fast-moving development. It came out of the um, National Party Congress uh, and the National Party Congress's direction to the State Council in in March, and the State Council says, well, we're going to get this um, off the drawing board and into reality by the end of 2013. Now, the Minister of Civil Affairs is moving very, very quickly to do this. Whether that actually happens is another question. And what benefits does an organization gain by registering? What are the main motivating factors for them? They, if they do not register, if they are, for example, recognized in this, in this very informal procedure that applies only to grassroots NGOs, they don't have the privilege of being recognized as legal entities, which means that the um, group members can be sued in personal capacity and they can't have bank accounts uh, for the organization. So they gain those two rights, which is to be sued as an organization, sue or be sued as an organization, and they gain the right to have an organizational bank account rather than a personal bank account. Um, the other thing that they can obtain if they are a public benefit civil society organization like a charity is they can obtain tax benefits. And that's another area in which there has been a fairly restrictive regime that has applied um, even through the, the current year where the, the Ministry of Civil Affairs and the State Administration of Taxation have granted nationally registered organizations only a limited number of entitlements to give receipts for donations. And that's complicated things to a very great extent. Many of the locally registered organizations are permitted to do that under the local bureaus of um, taxation. But, but the number in, for the national registration is limited to slightly over 120 organizations. Now, it's also true that it's possible to set up a fund within one of these organizations so that if you're a national organization that does not end up on the um, Ministry of Civil Affairs list, you can set up a fund within, say, the China Charity Federation or something like that, which permits you to, to raise funds and give receipts to donors and things like that. On the other hand, the China Charity Federation and the China Youth Development Foundation and all the big big um, government-related NGOs, well, they basically charge something for that, and it could be as much as 30%, which is very high state. Moving away from registration for a moment, in which parts of the country and in what fields of work are civil society organizations most active in China? And are there regions of the country or fields of work that are more or less off-limits for civil society groups? Well, the, I would say that the major um, places in which, the major, excuse me, areas of work in which they work, so they're registered, principally social services, and, and those are the ones that are attracting most attention. Now, obviously, there are, of course, um, commercially related organizations like trade associations and things like that. But putting them aside for the moment, I would say that it's the social organizations that, that work on, on social work-related kinds of things. So on, you know, basically community development projects, urban and rural training, uh, poverty alleviation and things like that. 
it is more difficult to um, get a an organization registered in certain fields. For example, um, public interest law firms don't really have a regime under which they can register, and that's certainly a, a, a problem. Um, and then in certain areas of the country, um, it's more difficult. Um, there's a, you know, it's more difficult in Xinjiang, it's more difficult in, in, in Tibet, um, you know, so, so I think that, you know, where, there, where organizations are trying to do things that may border on um, something that the government doesn't like, it's more difficult. On the other hand, many organizations have been able to register in the area of environmental protection. And this has been true since the 1990s, and it represents a recognition that um, China needs to do something about the environment. My next question relates to what you just mentioned about social services. You've said that the development of regulations for civil society organizations in China is part of economic restructuring. Can you tell me mm. a, a bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, that, it's very important to understand that. The, the uh, government has announced, and the party has is, is specifically said this in, in November of 2012, that this is all part of an economic development plan. And the economic development plan relates to the slogan that we've all heard for so long, which is small government, big society. And the way to achieve small government, big society is really to take social services and other things like environmental protection, et cetera, and outsource them to civil society organizations, uh, including trade protection. I mean, I'm not, I'm not su suggesting that isn't significant. Um, and, and so what they're doing is they're taking these things and putting them into the private sector in a whole variety of different ways. One of the, the significant ways with respect to social services is to um, allow the local, lo local bureaus of civil affairs to do public procurement for social services and to encourage civil society organizations to bid on the social service contracts. Now, it doesn't really work in, unless you have a whole bunch of NGOs that can compete with each other because if, it's, if there are only a couple of NGOs or CSOs that can actually compete, there's no real competition. And so the, the outcomes that the government wants to achieve, similar to what governments want to achieve everywhere in the United States and in Germany, just like in China, won't be achieved. In other words, you won't have any real competition um, for, to reduce prices, to involve more donors, from the private sector and things like that. So it, it becomes more difficult to downsize government if you don't increase the number of NGOs that can, can actually bid on con contracts. Looking forward to the next five years, what developments do you see coming down the pipeline for civil society organizations in China? You mentioned the development of uh, regulations, national regulations that would allow civil society organizations to directly register. Are there a few other items that you feel like will have a big influence on civil society in China? Yes. There's been, since 2005, there's been a discussion of a charity law um, that is not going forward right now, probably will not go forward until the new national level regulations are out. Um, the ch a charity law 
would be passed by the National People's Congress, that's a very long process. Um, and the draft was sent to the State Council uh, about a year ago, a little, a little more than a year ago. Apparently, it hasn't gone anywhere. So that, that's being backburnered. But it will happen, say, in the next five years. Um, and, and I think at this stage, I mean, if I were looking at it from the standpoint of, well, how would I rationally go about this? I think it's important to, to work on a couple of other things before that happens. I mean, a couple of other things in addition to the national regulations for registration. One is to put into practice better policies at the national level with respect to qualification as charities. You need to sort of sort that out. And the, and the state administration and Ministry of Finance officials need to sort that out with the Ministry of Civil Affairs. You know, what, what do they want to put into place and, and how will the charity law affect that? So, so I think th those two things um, go hand in hand. And then I think that developing a better system of, of the public procurement or you know, the granting of money by the state to civil society organizations needs to be looked at more carefully. My own NGO or civil society organization, the International Center for Civil Society Law, we did a project with the Ministry of Civil Affairs focusing specifically on this issue. And I know that they've thought a lot about, well, how do we do it better in China? Um, how do we really vamp up our processes for making public sector money available to civil society organizations? So I, I know that they're thinking about those kinds of things. Carla, thank you very much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. It's been a very interesting conversation, and I appreciate it. Well, you're certainly welcome, Dan, and I appreciate you asking me to do it. <laughs>